0: If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com/fredopi show. Live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's The Opi Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. Vinny Sombrato. Vinny is a classic tweener. I'm also a tweener, so I consider myself an expert on the topic. What's a tweener? I define tweener as someone who excels despite some obvious deficiencies. That could be height if you're a basketball player. Here at Babson College, we had a basketball player on our first national championship team, a guy named Joey Flannery. As a high school senior, Joey was not highly recruited. And Joey went on to grow, but exponentially during his time as a PG postgraduate student at a prep school. And then he came to Babson. And man, did he light it up! He was a conference MVP his freshman year. He went on to be a two time Division III player of the year. First time I ever saw Vinny was at a summer league game on Long Island at the old Freeport Lacrosse Summer League. And I was playing for a team from Manhattan because at that time I was attending Herkman County Community College and one of my teammates was a guy named Chris Acerno. He talked his teammates from high school from Manhattan into allowing me to play with their summer league. So I used to drive down there and have Tim Nelson in the car, Rob Hoynes, a bunch of guys from Yorktown. I'm from Croton on the Hudson. I remember the first time I saw Vinny. We were playing in a game against Vinny's team, and Vinny had his 78 U.S. national team helmet on, and it was intimidating. If you're a lacrosse junkie and you see a guy lining up against you in a summer league with a U.S. team helmet on, it puts the fear of God in your So I remember playing against Vinny then, and then it was many years later that I became a teammate of Vinny's on the long island lacrosse club and then later on the 1990 u.s. national teams i got to know him really well and Vinny is a classic new yorker classic long island accent you'll hear it in the interview and the guy is the nicest guy in the world he's always smiling he's oh i don't think i've ever seen him really get mad at anybody to be honest with you i've never seen it four-time u.s. national team player hall of famer a walking and living legend Vinny Sombrato, and I want you to listen to his story, which is unique in many ways. He is not like a lot of the other people I've interviewed on the show, with a outstanding college career, All-American this, Player of the Year, none of that kind of stuff. It's really unique for players who, like me, I relate to Vinny, because I had lacrosse on the brain. And the subtitle on my book, for the younger version of me, who had sports on the brain and lots of pain. I was a qualified, diagnosed lacrosse junkie, and Vinny was like that, and you'll hear how it affected his time as a college student. And so I want players who are like that, you're sold out for lacrosse, not balanced in your life, and listen to him tell his story, and now telling the story as a grown man with a fully developed frontal cortex. And parents, there are some cautionary tales about your child who is a student-athlete and wants to play sports in college. Vinny also uh, shares some insights into why great players are great players, why some players get the green light and why some don't. This will be part one, looking at Vinny's lacrosse journey. Vinny played at Chaminade before Chaminade became a dominant powerhouse program in lacrosse. talked about his time as a collegiate player at Hofstra University great players that he played with at Long Island Lacrosse Club, why the U.S. national team has not been as dominant as it has been in the past and probably will not be. Vinny, I want to say thank you for coming on the show, for being authentic and transparent about the good, the bad, and the ugly that you experienced in your lacrosse journey.
1: You know, the interesting part about my lacrosse journey, I didn't grow up initially in a lacrosse hotbed. I moved to a lacrosse hotbed in Fort Washington, Long Island, but for the first uh, 12 years of my life, I grew up in East Harlem, New York. Didn't even know what lacrosse was. In that neighborhood, people barely knew each other's real names. Everybody had a nickname, and my dad's nickname happened to be Star because everything my father did, he did well, particularly in sports. I think I got a lot of my athletic ability from my father, My mother was a fairly athletic person. She never played any kind of organized sports. And for that matter, I guess my father didn't, but he streetball type of guy. Played all different kinds of sports. Growing up, he taught me. He spent a lot of time with me playing different sports. One was really baseball. And I was a pretty good baseball player for my age. The move to Port Washington, everything changed in my life when I got here because I landed in a hotbed of lacrosse started predominantly in Port Washington by the great late Harvey Cohen, who saw an athlete in me playing football and said, forget baseball, you're going to play lacrosse. You know, I come to Port Washington and I land in a town that's known for lacrosse and has one of the best youth programs around. I go to Chaminade a year later. Chaminade never had a lacrosse team. I end up on the varsity, what would be considered varsity, because we only had one team. It was a club team, so to speak. There wasn't even a league formed yet. So I have the distinction of being on the first team I'd ever had. And here I am, I'm um, all of maybe five, six, and 98 pounds as a freshman in high school, and I'm playing against seniors. Wow. That's how it started for me. Made it difficult to compete. You're talking about this is like 1973. This is still the wood stick era. You know, people are just starting to move over to plastic. And in the wood stick era, it took a a lot to to create a skill level. Just to break in a stick sometimes took two, three years, you know, to get a skill level. The equipment in terms of the gloves and everything else, the helmets, uh, you know, we've come light years from that time. So, you know, kids today have a much better ability to build a skill level quickly and can start later in this sport. But back then, it was a little more difficult. My size, I didn't look at it as a detriment. I looked at it in the long term as a positive because being so small, I always had quickness and speed, but I had to learn to be really fundamentally sound at everything I did, starting with even ground balls. using my body well, positioning, beating a guy to the ball. So I had the fundamentals down as I grew, and that served me really well going forward.
0: Was there a middle school team that you played in before you went on to Chaminade, I wondered?
1: Well, I did play in the summer prior to going to Chaminade. You know, we had summer league teams that were age-specific, so I, I was kind of playing with kids in my grade, which was okay, which was better for me. But, you know, I just had to, had to suck it up and play and had no choice to, but to play with the older guys if I was going to play. It didn't intimidate me. I, I, You know, I played football in high school. I wrestled. I played basketball. I, was, I could play pretty much any sport. I, I really was attracted... To lacrosse because I had fun playing lacrosse as opposed to I love football, but I hated football practice. You know, the hitting sometimes was a little too intense, you know, especially being a small guy and, you know, you get put in drills where there's no avoiding, you just had to take hits, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was back then. You know, coaches weren't thinking like, you know, they don't need to take this punishment, it was all about toughness. It it might have been crazy at the time for me to go through it and say, why am I doing this to myself? It it helped me in the long run because I understood the different ways to avoid contact.
0: What was your experience as a high school senior? Were coaches coming to Chaminade to recruit you?
1: If any coaches came to look at any players for lacrosse, it was a rarity. What some coaches did come for was that they were trying to get a two-for-one because most of the guys who played football played lacrosse. But they were really looking at them as as uh, football players first, you know. WNL Jack Emmer at the time he was coaching football, and and WNL was already a powerhouse in lacrosse at that time. But he was when he came up to, he liked athletes, Jack Emmer. You know, he'd come and if he he was really looking at a guy as a football player first, and if he could also play lacrosse, he put a stick in his hand. He figured he could coach him up to be effective in
0: lacrosse. How did you end up at Hofstra?
1: I told you I was 98 pounds as a freshman, I was 138 pounds as a senior, so there wasn't a lot of guys knocking down my door, although I was, if they just checked box scores, I was a big scorer, although back then the Catholic League was not known to be very strong, but there were, each team had one or two real good guys, and I would consider myself in that category I I think I scored like 82 goals my senior year 15 games so I I was a scorer yet nobody was knocking down my door but I had a coach Larry Lynch who had attended Hofstra he played he was also my football coach he was an assistant football coach and head lacrosse coach and he he recommended me to Harry Royal at the time who was the coach at Hofstra and said this this guy slipped through the cracks nobody's really recruiting him hard but I think he's got something. Probably my size maybe scared some people away. But if you looked at me, I wasn't even shaving yet. I hadn't even hit any kind of growth spurt. I didn't shave till I was like a... I'm born in November, so I was young for the grade. And today, all these kids, they reclassify no matter what. But the perfect candidate for reclassification because I was born in November. So I was... Not only was I immature, I was young for the grade, too. So, I mean, I didn't start shaving until I was almost a sophomore in college. I had a lot of growing to do. And if somebody was willing to take the chance on me... Roll the dice and see what happens. And Harry Royal, talking with this Larry Lynch, he said, I have a few bucks left over. I could offer him some money. Would he play football too? Which I ended up playing football at Hofstra too while I was there. That's what happened. I ended up going to Hofstra and and that was it.
0: It's clear that you fit the definition of a tweener. Is a athlete who, despite some obvious deficit, weight, height, size, maturity, doesn't get a look. What position were you in football
1: in high school I played both wide receiver and I played safety or cornerback I wanted to be a receiver in, at Hofstra, and I was you know playing receiver and uh, we went had a scrimmage in our preseason we got beat up pretty good on the passing next day I went down to get my role for practice the guy gave me a different jersey said you're on defense now I said really he says yeah coach that so give you a defense so I started playing safety and cornerback
0: so what was your your major at Hofstra
1: That's a a good question. uh, And a mystery, I guess. One of the things that, you know, I I, uh, messed up in my life was my opportunity at Hofstra in terms of schoolwork. You know, I was a business major, but I did not take advantage of the opportunity at Hofstra. I liked having money in my pocket, so I used to work a lot during the days and then go to practices, and I would miss a lot of classes. And after my sophomore year, I was academically ineligible so that was the year that I ended up coming out of school and playing for Long Island Lacrosse Club went back to Hofstra my sophomore year we finished uh, seventh in the country Wow. we played Hopkins in the first round that was 1978 they beat us up pretty good but I was emerging as a player at that point you know the first half of the season I didn't do much scoring I was given more opportunity in the second half of the season and we We went on a pretty good tear. I think we won seven in a row, went down and beat W&L at a neutral site, Mount Washington Field. And all the guys from Hopkins were there watching. They had no game that weekend. And I think they were watching because they were looking at Washington and Lee thinking they were going to play them. We ended up beating them, and we ended up playing them in the first round. They, of course, ended up beating us pretty good and ended up beating Cornell at the national championship that year, snapping Cornell's 42-game win streak. That was Uh a great team.
0: So did you end up graduating from Hofstra?
1: I never graduated. I went back my third year, which would be a junior year in terms of eligibility, and I played that year and then didn't go back.
0: When I hear you talk about your interest and maybe some of the things that were a distraction at school, you sound just like my father. My father, he loved making money. He loved having money in his pocket. So he never actually even played high school sports. He was crazy about sports, but he, he'd he rather have money in his pocket. If you have a kid who goes off to college, but yet like Vinny or like my dad has got that entrepreneurial spirit, here's, here's my suggestion to folks out there. Consider... Do one or two things. Give the kid a gap year where they can go out, they can work, take an internship, they can see what real life is all about. It'd probably be a great motivation for when they decide they're ready for school, if school was right. I've seen other families do this, and I think this is really good, particularly kids who have an entrepreneurial spirit.
1: I agree with that. When you get out in the real world and what seems like a long day when you're, when you're young or even in college is a short day by any stretch when you're really working in the real world. To think that I would miss classes, that maybe I'd have three hours in a whole day to attend class, and I didn't, it seems so foolish now to me and say, you know, why didn't I just suck it up and go? I was an honor roll student. wasn't like I, I couldn't do the work. I just didn't have an interest in it. But I should have looked at it more that you're here. Just get it done. To be honest, a lot of times I go to the school, I blow off a class because I went to the field house and I was practicing. I put more of my energy into playing because that's what I really like doing. Tell kids all the time what happened with me. Don't do what I did and not putting the time towards the class. My parents did have to pay some of my costs for college. That wasn't right to make them spend their money when I wasn't taking advantage of it. But You're given these opportunities that some other kids would die for. You don't take advantage of it. It's not cool. You know, you got you to get through school. I would surely have
0: gone another way. The show will be right back. For related content on negotiating the world of school and sports, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The Super 7, principles to grow, win with people, and be more creative. In this clip, you're going to hear a live session of the Super 7 in which I talk about planning. I don't make any commitment unless I can write it down on my calendar. Somebody calls me on a cell phone and says, hey, can we get together on such and such? How often do we make commitments and we don't write it down, and then we miss it? It can happen so easily. So. I ask you to think about a way of managing your time by making sure that you have a count. Then you can go in and you can give yourself a notification. You can say, you know, I need to prep for this class. Well, 75 minutes before class starts. Now I have a reminder. When people say to myself, oh, you know, you seem so organized. No, I'm not organized. I'm just smart enough to write it down. That's what's in that book. I'm excited for that bad boy to drop and it's going to be happening very soon as an audio book a Kindle, and a hard copy. Welcome back to this edition of the Fred Opie Show. There are bosses and coaches who give some employees and some players what I call the green light. They could do whatever they want. You know, I think about Coach Dave Petromala as a player at Hopkins. He could do whatever he wanted. There there are players like that. Is there a green light ability or is it something innate, Or behavioral when people get the green light on the job or on the field
1: real smart coach understands who he can give the green light to and not to you know I think there's guys who you 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 feel like you give the green light to because you have trust in them I think that's built on trust you know that a guy is not gonna do something that's you know so crazy that he's gonna hurt the team and I and, and you know when you when you talk about greats I think what all the greats have in common is that they are team first, ultimately. You know, it may not look like it sometimes. He might get the most shots, or maybe he could have made another pass, or whatever. But in terms of competitive spirit and the team situation, you know, the, the overall doing what's best for the team, a coach is going to trust that guy and give him the green light because he knows he's going to he's going to do what's for the team first. And I think that when a, a, a great player feels like he's been you know given that by the coach he don't want to let the coach down either makes him a stronger leader and gives you an ability to lead by example and i think leading by example is what makes other guys on a team follow you best
0: is that ability that you can be trusted that you're a team player that teams first are those qualities that you would say they're genetic you're you're born with them you're gifted with them from god or people who develop that as they're coached and as they work with other great players?
1: I've seen both. Your family upbringing. So if you come from a family like that, you understand that, and you understand that that works best. Now you translate that on, onto the sports field, and if you could do the same thing. The Philadelphia Eagles one, what are they talking about more than anything? We're a family. Knowing that guys are close in that way and that nobody's there... Everybody's, you know, not for their own glory, but rowing the boat in the same direction. I think that's what's important. Some people are born with it, I think some people develop it. You could be a superstar when you're 9 and 10, you're you're pretty good in high school, you get to college and you're not even playing. And then you got other guys who you say, where did this guy come from? You know, he was pretty good and now he's one of the dominant guys. The level of time you're willing to put into something, you know, physically you, you might mature, More than physical maturity, I think it's mental maturity.
0: Some of the greats. uh, Many of the people that we're going to talk about were Hall of Famers, people you played with on U.S. national teams and people you played against during what I would call the heyday of club lacrosse when there was no pro outdoor lacrosse. This is what we did. I was just telling my son about this. I'm a guy from Westchester County, New York. It took an hour in good traffic to make it down to Hofstra, to play for Long Island, the Hofstra lacrosse club with you. But I made the decision to go down there and do that because I wanted to be a U.S. national team player. So being on that field with the best player players were important. And playing against the best were important. In terms of green light, why were these people great players and why did their coaches give them the green light? Lake great, Manhasset native, John Driscoll.
1: John was just a phenom from when he picked up the stick, through the youth leagues, through high schools, you know, the things he accomplished, were legendary, going to Virginia. John was just an all-around player. He was as competitive as they come, and he wanted to win first. It didn't matter. Well, John would do anything to win. didn't care much about scoring, but if the team needed scoring, he'd score. If the team needed him to get some ground balls, he'd get some ground balls. A lot of the guys I played in, in that era, we were, we were very similar that way. There was no pride of authorship. We were just so happy to win all the time. He wasn't physically a, a dominant guy. John, uh, I think at his best, couldn't have weighed more than about 165, 170. But he, he had that first two steps that he was in. He was at full speed within his third step. Incredible that way. He didn't have a tremendous left hand or anything, but you you couldn't stop his right hand. He found a way to get it done. And that's what I think a lot of the guys I was fortunate enough to play with, they found ways to win. More than anything, they had this ability to win, get over on the next guy. Somehow, someway, they figured it out. Hmm. You know, you have Kevin Lowe, who was on the first Princeton team to ever win a national championship, which he had a lot to do with. You know, he was a, a big piece of that puzzle. And you had Darren. He never got to that far, but he left Brown as their all-time leading scorer and one of the highest scorers in, in, in NCAA history, and then was on two national teams that won championships. And the unique one was in 2002 when a lot of the MLO guys couldn't play. He basically captained a, a younger squad to a championship that everybody was in fear that they might lose to Canada. So, you know, there's that leadership again and his, his ability to raise the level of everybody around him.
0: We're going to take a commercial break now and we'll be right back Our scripture of the day is Ephesians 619. Pray also for me," writes the apostle Paul, "that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel." Stephen Pressfield, author of the must-read book *The Art of War*, said, "Remember one rule of thumb: the more scared we are of a work or calling, the more sure we can be that we have to do." show now to impact more history to positively impact the future you you mentioned canada good segue to talk about stan cockerton who played at nc state stan
1: cockerton forget it you know i mean you, you talk about scorers that's a scorer i mean you could look at statistical categories but i think stan playing in a tough schedule acc at the time with the carolinas and virginia and maryland and tough out of conference schedule he only played 40-something games in college, 44, 48, something like that. And he, I think he has the record for points per game in a career. He averaged over four goals per game. His skill level was ridiculous. He was doing things that nobody had ever seen in the States in terms of skill. His ability to shoot the ball, his ability to uh, uh, find openings. If you ran into Stan Cockerton on the street and somebody introduced you, you'd be looking at saying, this guy scored 193 <laughs> goals. He, you know, there had to be a tremendous amount of toughness with the guy, too, because he's tiny. He's one of my all-time favorites. It's funny because Stan scored the winning goal against uh, the USA team in 78, first time U.S. ever lost a game. You know, they beat the U.S. by a goal, and he was back in college after that season. He was a senior, and it just so happens they were coming to Hofstra on a six-game win streak. We were going to play them at a, on a, at a night game, and the whole write-up before was more about them than us. And we were the, the home team in Newsday, and it was probably, at the time, you know, we, we maybe got 1,000, 1,200 people to a game. That night, we maybe had 3,500 to 4,000. More people came to see Stan than anything, and he did break the record that night. We ended up beating them, because was, you know, it was like a big thing for us. You know, here we were, they came in, everybody talked about NC State, NC State, and Stan Cockapin, and we ended up upsetting them that night and knocking them out of the playoffs.
0: Is Ron Frazier.
1: Ron, of course. You know, he's one of my mentors. You know, it was interesting because at the time, you didn't have some of the club teams that emerged in like the early 80s, North Hempstead, they were, that was a spinoff of really the Long Island Team. a lot of the Long Island players moved over to there because we, we didn't have enough room for everybody. We had all Americans who weren't getting in games.
0: <laughs> you know, it
1: was incredible. The first year I went out for Long Island, because I told you I, w- I was ineligible, and I went out for Long Island. I get there the first weekend, and there's like almost 200 guys trying out for this team. They're there, I'm saying, wow. And of course, I see legends in the game, Tom Postel, Stan Kowalski. Ronnie Frazier, Mike Thurl the list goes on and on. Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. And Tom Flatley was the coach. And he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have two to three weekends like this of tryouts. At the end of that, we're going to send a letter to your homes. And that letter is going to list 25 names. And those guys are the team. Hmm. But we're not throwing anybody out or anybody off or cutting anybody. You could still come and practice all the time. And who knows, if guys get hurt, maybe you move yourself up. But we don't want to hear that you're not playing or anything else. You know, we don't want no complaining from those guys. These are the 25 guys. And so I went and I did my best, and I'm playing against guys who had big reputations. I had had a very good year my sophomore year. But again, I'm only, I was young for the grade. I'm like 19 years old. I'm playing, and I really wasn't intimidated because I could always run. So I said, I'll make myself valuable around the field, whether it's picking up ground balls, running, whatever. I always listened to what guys told me. Didn't, like, blow guys off if they were giving me advice. If I made a play and I came to the sidelines and a guy said, that was okay, but you should have did this. It would have been better. I didn't say, who's this guy going to tell me? It didn't matter at any time. If a guy said to me, Vinny, why don't you do this? I'd say, yeah, could I have done that better? Yeah, all right, good. I'm glad you told me. Players need to be open to that whether it's from another guy who you think is better than you or maybe not as good as you, because it doesn't matter. You could always learn something from these guys. When that list came out, uh, Coach Flatley was looking at it like, everybody expected me to go back to school. So they didn't want to, like, maybe put me on that list and get a guy who would play for them bent out of shape that I was ahead of them. But I think uh, Tom Postel kind of convinced him. He, He saw something in me and said, you know, this kid might go back to college, but I think he's a long-term player. And if you, you cut him now, he may never come back to this team. I think it's better we keep him because he likes to play. And he was right because, you know, I played for the next almost 20 years.
0: Ron Frazier, what was his game like?
1: I was playing with Ron. He knew the game inside out. He taught me a lot of little intricacies about the game, pushing the ball down the field and all those things. Because he saw I had the legs and some talent as far as how he was playing at that time if Ronnie got his hands free he could still shoot it lights out he was always known as one of the hardest shooters ever because at the point when I was playing with him he didn't have his legs at all you know as much Tommy Postel but their skill level of putting the ball in the goal was incredible Hmm. they were fundamentally really sound you know Ronnie more of a sidearm hard shooter Tommy a straight overhand deadly accurate shooter Hmm. Ronnie didn't have to be at his best physically to be productive, and also to make other guys look good. And I learned something from that because after, you know, I had made two world teams and I hurt my knee. But some of those lessons I learned, I had to play differently. I wasn't Mm -hmm. the same dodger I was before I hurt my knee. Mm -hmm. But I learned how to play even better off the ball and and different things I could do to help the team. Mm -hmm. It was just always about figuring out a way that I'm going to be productive to win games.
0: Billy Marino. And most people know Roddy, his Hall of Fame younger brother. Both of them in the Hall of Fame, is that correct?
1: They're both in the Hall of Fame. And by the way, the younger uh, Tommy is the middle brother. Tommy Marino was a first-team All-American a couple of times at Cornell and I think an alternate for the U.S. team. Okay. So that's a, a family-rich group right there. But Billy, another guy that I learned a lot from. When I was a sophomore at Hofstra, we scrimmaged Long Island one night. And this guy, I knew his reputation at Cornell, but that night he just was like, he just seemed like a ghost running up and down the field. It was like he was always open, and, and I after I said to him, how do you get so open all the time? How do you know when to accelerate? How do you know? And he looked at me like, you know, I, I never forget it. He was like, you're asking me? I said, yeah, I want to know. It like I think it threw him like, you know, he's a college guy, trying to learn from him. And the next year when I came out and I, I played, we ended up you talk about you talked about John Driscoll. Mm-hmm. That was our midfield. Me, Driscoll, and Billy Marino. So that's a pretty good midfield. They were great guys to play with. You know, we all had different things we did well, and we just complemented each other, and uh, we learned from each other. And and you know we we played together in '81. We won the club championship. We beat Mount Washington in the finals, pretty bad. We beat them by eight ten goals. And eight of our ten starters on that Long Island team made the world
0: peace. If you grew up in the current era, even three decades of lacrosse, your your mind is fixated on the pro league. And before there was a pro league, we were paying our own dime as club players to go yep. play. We had to pay for, you know, dues to get on the team. And you know, here it is, I'm in Westchester driving sometimes 60 and 90 minutes across the Throg's neck, you know, bridge. It, it was it was serious dedication
1: for love of the game you know guys really loved playing and if there was a game you know guys were there you know if there was any opportunity to play at a high level guys were there the only thing you you know you stru- you, you, you wanted to win club championships and maybe the biggest prize was every four years you got a shot to be on the world team and you, you, you tried to position yourself and get better and play with the right guys to give you a chance to get to that next level i, I was very lucky that you know Who knows? I made four teams. I came along at the right time. I was the right kind of player for how guys played back then. Whatever it was, it worked for me. But once you're on one team or two teams and they know what they have with you, it gives you an advantage, obviously. I had this conversation with John Donowski. You know, he's coaching the U.S. team this time. picking my brain about some things, and we're talking about MLL players compared to college players and what's better suited for this U.S. team and all of that. And I said to him... You know what's interesting? You know, they talk about the MLL, and these are high-level players. fantastic. I don't know who from our era could fit in this era. I think anybody who was great then could play now. It's just we'd adjust. You'd mm. figure it out, you mm. know. I look at it, and I said to John Donavsky, I said, look, maybe I, I'm different because I played with a great club that historically had guys, retained guys. I said, you talk about the MLL. You don't have the same lineup sometimes mm-hmm. five weeks in a row in the MLL. Mm. I played with Norm Anglekey, Randy Natoli, Matt Crowley. These guys were on Long Island for nine, ten years straight together. There wasn't like a lot I had to learn about their game or know what they were going to do. I knew instinctively and, and just from repetition, we knew each other so well. So, you know, I laugh because they say, you think your team could beat the, this team? When I was out in Denver in the fourteen during the World Games, and the U.S. was lumping everybody up, other than the first game against Canada. They mm. won by a few goals. We had a USA like reunion, and there was guys from all the different areas. So somebody said, well, you've been around it. What do you think? Is this the best U.S. team ever? And I said, they didn't even win the championship yet. How could you consider them a best ever? Yeah. And they said, what, well, are you crazy? They're going to kill Canada tomorrow. And I said, I'm not too sure about that. And they thought I was nuts. But, you know, the difference was what I knew maybe that they weren't thinking about was you know, when we played the Canadians, they never saw us play. They had a lot of box guys. They okay. had different guys. Didn't have a real lot of field experience. Now the guys that the U.S. team is playing against, they've gone for four years of college. Yeah. They're playing in the pro league. They're used to these guys. They're not, they know what they do. It actually has gotten more difficult to beat them. Not that there wasn't great teams, you know, when we played. Whether it was when the Gates were at their best mm. coming, you know, that 90 team with the Gates and Cockerton and Kevin Alexander, mm. they could always score. Their defense was always a bit of an issue. It's level the play and feel, and we normally would go into these things always figuring, you were an odds maker, saying what, 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 uh, how many goal favorite would you think the U.S. is going into the World Games. Have a team that's capable of playing any style. When I was out in Denver, I'm watching Australia and England try to compete against the U.S., and I'm like, why would they try to play an up and down? Are they here for fun or are they here to win? Your only chance is by trying to hold the ball. You're playing up and down against them. You're going to just a matter of time before they're up 10, 15 goals on you. To, To talk about rules and all of that, figure it out. We were able to figure it out for many years. They figured out once or twice how to beat us. That's competition.
0: That's it for this edition of The Fred Opie Show. Thank you for joining us. Check out the show archive at fredopiespeaks.com, as well as our books and other content. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. check out our show notes where you'll find a way to subscribe to our podcast like us on Facebook follow us on Twitter you'll find links to books discussed on the show links to our YouTube channel where you can watch the show if you want to know more about what I'm doing go to fredopi.com which is my website you can see information on the books I publish there are two blogs that I host there both a food and an athlete's blog and there's both a food and an athlete's podcast the whole archive to both those two podcasts are there At the bottom of the podcast page, I have links to interviews that I have listened to on other people's podcasts that I would recommend to you.